Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. Professor David Kittay spoke with me recently on a vast array of incredibly interesting questions about Buddhism and technology. We talked about whether technologically-assisted enlightenment might be possible, the nature of time, whether our phones and our social media accounts have become part of ourselves, and how to deal with tech addiction. Dr. David Kittay teaches philosophy, religion, and technology at Columbia University, where his students call his courses life-changing. Dr. Kittay is also an author, a translator, and a Tibet House board member. His latest publication is the Vajra Rosary Tantra, available from Wisdom Publications. Dr. David Kittay, thanks for joining me today to talk about Buddhism and technology. Great to be here. I'd love it if you could start out telling us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to become a professor of Buddhism and philosophy. I was always interested in why things were the way they were. And then when I was about 16, I read Dysett's Suzuki's book called Essays in Zen Buddhism, which was uh, a real entry along with The Way of Zen, Alan Watts' book. So I read that book, and in the introduction, Suzuki talks about when you fall in love for the first time, there's a split in your ego because you finally found something that means more to you than your own self. I was 16 years old, and he got me with that because I'm very romantic. And then Chogyam Trungpa had just come over to the United States, and I started hitchhiking up to his place in Vermont, which was called Tale of the Tiger. At that time, there were only five or ten people there, and that was wonderful. Then I ended up going to England and Turkey to hang out with the Sufis, and I started meditating around the same time. And when I would meditate, now here I'm about 20, 21, the whole sky would open up. It was very, in a way, easy to get to another state of consciousness. But then I asked myself, I said, but you're just 20 years old. You're so superficial. How can you understand anything? So I decided it was time for me to learn about the dark side, to get into the world. I remembered that a tutor that I had had when I was studying Turkish and Russian, Zakia Eglar. She had said to me, you should be a lawyer. And then I said, okay, I could be a lawyer. Words, that's okay. And dark side, yes, that would be a really great entrance to the dark side. So I did it. I went to law school. I met my still wife, Jan, in a library when I was in my third year of law school. 
We got married after knowing each other for three weeks after that, over a period of nine months. Very impulsive. Wow. And then I became a lawyer. I worked on Wall Street. We had kids. And then I was about in my late 40s. And I said, okay, I have really experienced the dark side. So I emailed Bob Thurman, who I had read a couple of his books. I didn't know him. I said, well, uh, I would like to learn Tibetan as a way of figuring out if the Tibetans really know anything. And he sent me to Lozan Jamspal, a Ladakhi, former monk, and said he guides out beginners, which I was. And so I went to see Jamspal. And that was about 30 years ago. And we started translating after he taught me the alphabet. And then we've been translating ever since. As a way of accelerating my learning, I applied to Columbia. Somehow they took me. I became a doctoral student. I got my dissertation done. And then I've been hanging around ever since, uh, teaching courses which evolved into a lot of courses about technology and Buddhism and Dharma and hermeneutics, which I define as trying to see the water we swim in. So that's basically how it happened. The wonderful life divided into two different parts. You had a spiritual seed early on in your life. I got a chance to take your class, a version of your class they offered at Tibet House, and I loved it. So most of the questions here are drawn from that class and in offering your students the opportunity to really participate in constructing the answers to these questions. I wanted to emphasize that because you're very humble in your source of wisdom. It's really not humility so much. It's that I really don't know a heck of a lot about technology and I really don't know a heck of a lot about science. These questions are really broad and really complicated. And I find that when a group of us get together Really, no matter who the group consists of, we get so much deeper because the human experience is so varied. And I want to also thank you, Scott, for doing this. This is so great. And a skeptic's path. That's so great because, yes, skepticism. Let's start off with a question about skepticism then, because as you and I know, having studied Buddhism, the Buddha taught us to be skeptical even of everything he taught. Can you talk a little bit about the role of skepticism in Buddhism today? And especially the provocative question of whether there are aspects of Buddhism that were taught at his time that we might no longer be able to accept given our current understanding of the universe. The thing about Buddhism is it, it changed wherever it went anywhere. For instance, it got to Japan and then we had the Kami who were the kind of nature protectors and then they all converted to Buddhism. So Japanese Buddhism as that. In Tibet, we have the protector deities, uh, etc. Of course, gets here, gets California, it's going to change. I remember Lama Yeshe in his book, Introduction to Tantra, he wrote about how, wow, Buddhist Tantra is great for Westerners because it gives instant results. I've often thought about Buddhism, really using the analogy of Buddha as doctor, that Buddhism is just a collection of therapeutic methods, mental and physical and spiritual, for the different sorts of people. And there's so many different sorts of people. So in one sense, Buddhism is deeply skeptical. You have the Heart Sutra, which is probably the most chanted and repeated sutra there is in Buddhism, which is the most skeptical thing imaginable. 
There's no ear. There's no eye. There's no suffering. There's no origin of suffering. There's no attainment. There's even no non-attainment. Okay, you're playing with me, aren't you, Buddha? So in that sense, deeply skeptical. And the thing is about Buddhism, that on the one hand, it's skeptical. Know this, know that. And the Madhyamakas and their philosophy, they won't give a thesis. Just like Socrates, what they'll do is they'll undermine everybody else's thesis, which gives rise to this great opening when we get away from conceptuality and our own ideas and biases. It's a way of getting some wiggle room. But on the other hand, Buddhism is a religion. Buddha also taught ethics and karma. So we have in Buddhism a conundrum which reflects life. And how could it not, right? Is life totally logical, Scott? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So if you had a really good doctor who wanted to help you understand life, part of it wouldn't be strictly logical. Yeah. And that's why the last of the four reliances is rely on wisdom, not conceptuality, not just ideas. So yes, Buddha did teach us to be skeptical, but even to be skeptical about skepticism. If you don't like dogma, then you can't be dogmatic about it. But also, because Buddha was such a savant about life and people, he also didn't take things too far. He was deeply concerned with each person and what they needed, what would help them suffer less or be happier. So thank you, Buddha. As Buddhism comes into this 21st century, you quoted Marshall McLuhan's famous statement that the medium is the message. As he talked about how different it is to learn Buddhism from a book or a teacher or the internet. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the traditional view of the, the medium. We learn Buddhism from that face-to-face relationship with a teacher and how that compares to learning Buddhism from our iPhone or our Kindle or our Zoom or virtual reality? Well, I could just speak, of course, from my own experience. Mm -hmm. And being a skeptic, after all, I was a lawyer for a long time. But being a skeptic, I was always very skeptical about guru yoga. Yeah. Which, of course, is so important in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Before we say, I go to refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the first thing we say is, I go to refuge to the Lama, to the guru. Yeah, in Tibetan Buddhism. And, uh, of course, that's given rise to all kinds of problems when credulous Westerners do everything that imperfect people tell them to do, because it's different for us. Traditionally, for instance, in Tibet or in ancient India, yes, the Rinpoche or the guru was there, but lived in town, and everybody knew very well who he or she was, the foibles the strengths, the weaknesses. So there's a different thing. For me, though, being so skeptical about this guru yoga, it's part of my egotism. I just hate when people tell me what to do. It makes me nuts. I should get over that. So I had started studying with Jamsbal, and he was, uh, now he's in Thailand at the International Buddhist College, and we Skype twice a week. But for decades, we were together. We would live together sometimes. 
He would come and stay with us. And then I would go to his place and we would just hang out a lot. So years and years ago, I had to get an MRI. They put you into that. It's like coffin and they slide you in there and then the metal sheathing around you makes a lot of noise. I remember when they did that to me decades ago, I thought I was going to just die. And I had a really hard time with it. Many decades later, I had to get another MRI. And I didn't think about it. I figured, uh, I'm sure the technology is different. They can't slide you into that thing anymore. No way. I got there and they slid me in and I freaked out. I said to the tech, could you please get me out of here? And the tech tried to sweet talk me. It didn't do any good. I said, get me out. He slid me out. And then he said, maybe you can just think about something else. And then I thought to myself, what would Joms Paul's mind be like? And I said, put me back in. And I was fine. Now, the reason that I knew what would Joms Paul's mind be like was because we had spent so much time together. And I had seen him process how he related with the world, with people. We talk about the guru absorbs through the top of your head and all that in the practice. Somehow that happened. So that was my first understanding many years later of guru yoga. And it had to do with actual close observation over a long period of time, which actually is consistent with the Buddhist teaching that you shouldn't really do any deep teachings with a teacher until you know each other well, both ways, over the course of 12 years. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. So, yes, I think there's a tremendous difference between doing something in person and doing it episodically over Zoom. Now, that's not to say that a podcast or a movie is valueless. No way. There's so much great stuff out there now through media that it also gives us unimagined opportunities to connect with people like the Dalai Lama and others. So the technology, I like to think of it as having tremendous benefits, but also there's some downsides. And I also think of being in person just having tremendous benefits also. So we can have the best of both worlds today. You bring up this question of whether technologically assisted or technologically created enlightenment is possible. And what you just said brings up, I think, a little bit of doubt about that. What have you and your students thought about this question? Enlightenment through technology. Yeah. When you learn about the major and minor marks of a Buddha, right? A Buddha has a crown protrusion. On his head, he's got webbed fingers and wheels. I mean, all of this science fiction stuff sounds a lot like virtual reality, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. So could technology assist in enlightenment? Maybe. The technology that we have today is mostly digital technology. The students at Columbia, when we get together and we discuss all this, half of them are engineers and computer scientists. So the perspective and learning that comes from them is fantastic. But technology, especially digital technology, is about zeros and ones, is about bits. And so there's a binary logic at play. 
And I have to say that I've always been very skeptical about binary logic. That it's either got to be A or not A. And I remember looking into this and finding that there was a thread through Indian philosophy, through Mandana Misra, who was a Advaita Vedanta teacher, and also through Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi, and of course through Nagarjuna and the Madhyamakas, that doesn't necessarily subscribe to it's got to be either A or not A. Now, I know that in Buddhist logic, when you do the meditation on emptiness, you have to say, if I can't find the self in A or not A or both A and B, or et cetera, et cetera, that there is binary logic at play in that. But that's okay. Because once again, we get back to the fact that Yes, we do live in the world, and that's what the Buddhists call conventional truth. But also there's something that is not conventional truth, which we call emptiness, which is something else. So again, the distinction between conceptual wisdom and this non-conceptual wisdom is very important. So the question being, how could technology bring us to enlightenment? My own conclusion is that it can help, but can't get us all the way there because at this point, and it was certainly true for Buddha, a good part of us is mammal, as an animal. And animals are not just about zeros and ones. They're not even just about quantum mechanics where you have the superposition of zeros and ones. We're also about bodies and that wonderful combination of body and mind. So I think it can help. I hadn't heard that before, and I, I find it very powerful that um, digital technology is like the ultimate dualism. It collapses everything to the duality of either a one or a zero. But then you made that nice analogy to asking a dualistic question, even in the ultimate contemplation of the nature of reality. And the contemplation of that dualistic view knocks you out of it somehow. It's really quite wonderful. It's like life. Yeah. Right? You can come to a logical conclusion about life, but you're missing something. The other aspect of technology is this emphasis on information. And quantum physics, too, seems to say that we live in an information-based reality. Scientists talk very solidly about information being real and perhaps the, the most real thing that we understand now. How does information relate perhaps to the Buddhist view of mind? Yeah, well, first of all, not being a physicist. And so the best I can do is read a lot. But I come back to Erwin Schrodinger, who was one of the progenitors of quantum mechanics. He was also a scholar of classical Greek. And he wrote about how the knowledge in just one field, no matter what it is, doesn't mean anything unless it's combined with all the other fields of knowledge, right? Which is also why the Dalai Lama's discussions on mind, where all these people are brought together, is so great. And also is why I love seminars where we can get people with different expertises together. But you asked the question, I'll do my best to answer it. So John Wheeler, one of the great physicists of the 20th century, he had a theory, he called it it from bit. In other words, physical reality came from bits, from information. 
And there are other theorists who say, yes, it's really all about information. Max Tegmark, the great mathematician who's at MIT, he says it's all about mathematics, being a skeptic. I can't help it but think that, wow, gee, a mathematician thinks it's all about mathematics. That's interesting. To a carpenter, everything is a nail. So I have to be skeptical about it's all information. Now, certainly the notion that measurement or observation determines the nature of reality, or at least the nature of what we think reality is, puts a great premium on the observing mind, which is like Buddhist Yogacara, mind-only theory. And it's no surprise that the Buddhist meditators came to that conclusion, which is a similar conclusion that great physicists come to when they also think about things deeply, like Einstein or the discovery of the double helix, for example. So this notion that information is primary can be very helpful in liberating us from a view of the world where everything is material, everything is about physical reality. But if you're not hung up on physical reality, then going for information as being everything is probably not going to help you. In other words, if you're a computer geek who already thinks it's information, and then you have a theory that, oh, everything's information, then you just feel great and it becomes an ego-reinforcing dogmatism. Even with my very rudimentary understanding of quantum mechanics, which no one understands, so come on, Boomer, what are you talking about? Uh, so all of these things are our nature, our desire to figure things out so we can feel a little better. Nothing wrong with that. So be skeptical of an information-only or mind-only extreme. Well, yeah, I, I, we have to be skeptical about everything, including yeah. skepticism. You make another parallel between Eastern and contemporary views, uh, contemporary technology. When you talk about Indra's net in the same sentence as the internet, can you talk a little bit about that parallel? Yeah, of course, Indra's net is a vision that you have that comes out of India in the realm of the god Indra. There's this net that stretches out infinitely in all directions. And each jewel of the net reflects all the other jewels. And so there's just this kind of infinite reflection. And whatever affects one jewel would, through reflection, affect them all. And wow, sounds a lot like the internet. In fact, some people call it the intranet. It's a great analogy to seeing why the Buddhists talk about wisdom and compassion inseparable. Because if the wisdom of emptiness is right, and I like to explain this as nothing having an overdone or underdone nature. Everything just is the way it is. So everything is, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, interexists. Obviously, Scott you and me and anyone who listens to this, we're all interexisting. We're like little jewels in Indra's net. And the Buddhist theory is that if you see things like that, how there's cause and effect all over the place, without any artificial barriers, you'll feel compassion. And I think that has to do with our mammalian nature, actually. I've been thinking about this lately. Our animal nature isn't all bad. And our egocentricity as humans 
we say, oh, we've gone beyond the animals, but there's something quite wonderful about being a mammal mm-hmm. and cuddling. So yes, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about inter-existing, inter-being, which is so wonderful. And that's really what Indra's net is all about. That's what the positive part of social media and the internet are all about. Of course, we get carried away with them, but. Yeah, and those were the original motivations of the internet and, and still so much of the benefits. Yeah, and I was thinking is if when we tuned into social media, we thought to ourselves just for an instant, wow, I'm entering Indra's net, which we're all in all the time anyway. But if we thought about that might change our perspective on social media. Can you imagine that? that then it would become a, a practice. Yeah. In some ways, aesthetics really matter so much because in movies, there's always a really good intro sequence, right? As you go into the thing. And I, I think those aesthetics really matter because that happens in our meditation practice too. There's always a very important introductory sequence that gets you in the mindset. And just flipping on your laptop or your phone, it it doesn't have that cool intro sequence. <laughs> Maybe just a really cool intro sequence would make us more compassionate and interconnected. And I think that's part of being a mammal, right? If you are an advanced AI, then maybe you don't need that intro sequence because you're immediately training on 143 billion points of data. But as mammals, we like dinner and a movie, you know, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Love and compassion. Yeah. I was very surprised at first to see you bring up technological addiction as such a big part of your course, of course, is a big part of our reality today. Could you talk a little bit about why technological addiction has a relationship to this topic of Buddhism and technology? There are thousands, if not tens of thousands of engineers working assiduously on what will get Scott to click. And they pretty much know what will get Scott to click. As the CEO of Google said, and this was back in 2010, we pretty much know what you're thinking. So we have this advent of what uh, Shoshana Zubov calls surveillance capitalism, where it's really, it's a form of capitalism. It's engineers figuring out how to make you buy stuff. And the way to do that is to addict you. And so we have a very powerful manipulation going on. And of course, this applies if your interest is Buddhism or just like anything else. If you click on things that have to do with Buddhism, they'll figure out how to draw you further in and eventually make you buy stuff. And we know about addiction. We know what it's like. We see all of us sitting around and all of a sudden, before you know it, everybody's looking at their phone instead of looking at each other. Now, sometimes it's fine to look at your phone. That's all right. But then Buddhism taught about addiction. Buddhism was all about addiction. I remember Bob Thurman's preferred translation for what most call affliction is addiction. So this is true. And we find that there's CDC studies that show tremendously elevated rates of bad things happening to people, especially teenagers who spend a lot of hours on their phones. But Buddhism teaches us how to get rid of addiction. And so we're lucky having stumbled upon something having to do with Buddhism. 
Of course, Buddhism isn't the only thing that teaches us how to get rid of addiction. And Buddha would be the first to say, and in fact, the Tibetan psychiatric tradition embraces this, that it's not just meditation. It can be a psychoactive or psychotropic medication, which is widely used in Tibet through herbs, etc. So yes, addiction can be very powerful. And with the students of all ages, it's great because when you have a seminar, everyone can talk about their experience. And so all of a sudden, it's not just what you think about it. It's through indirect relationships of Indra's net again, you can get a great sample of what's really going on. Can you talk about those antidotes to addiction? And and is tech addiction different than food or sex or work or power addiction? On the one hand, those other addictions, food, power, etc., they tend to come from our mammal side. That's not to say that food isn't manipulated. You you have food combined with technology. So you have advertising, you have a lot of kids eating junk all over the world. Uh, You mentioned sex addiction. Pornography is one of the leading industries everywhere. And that's just designed to encourage uh, a certain kind of relationship with sexuality. And then, gee, you have power. Well, think about how men have used power over centuries in just about every social setting there is to uh, increase and maintain their power over women. All these things become much more powerful, though, with technology. And, and, And it may be because instead of a larger cultural trend that just plays itself out in a Darwinian way. Now we have these really smart engineers figuring out exactly how to manipulate us. That's something that's new. Do your students ever ask for help? Especially younger people I see feeling almost helpless in the face of that power and their conditioning with their technology. Are there ever any cries for help in your courses? And what do people come up with to help deal with those addictions? It's interesting. I'm very optimistic because what I See, I, lately I've been, I, well, I've been teaching in three forums at, at Columbia, and then I also have been teaching for the past uh, decade or so a humanities program in Harlem. And then, of course, there's Tibet House and teachings like this. The reason I'm optimistic is because I see healthier attitudes toward technology in my students and also in the folks in the Harlem Clemente course. It's really interesting to me how it is easier for younger people, at least for a lot of people these days, to focus on the positive aspects of tech and turn off their social media. Many of my students are doing that. But it does come up. For example, one woman was addicted totally to her Fitbit and how much she was sleeping, whether she was sleeping deeply. And after we read about surveillance capitalism, she got rid of it and felt much better. The principle of emptiness or interdependence tells us that we aren't separate from the people and the world and the ideas around us. And added to that list today is our technological reality, our phones, the internet. So what role do our phones and the internet play in our modern sense of self? They become parts of ourselves. So... When you're holding on to your cell phone, what is it? 
Is it a part of yourself? Is it an extension of yourself? I mean, this was one of Marshall McLuhan's big points back when the technologies are extensions of ourselves. And I like to do a little meditation sometimes with my phone where, okay, here's my phone. So I'll look at it. And if I concentrate on my whole self in three dimensions, then as I hold my phone, it certainly seems it's just an extension of myself. But then if I concentrate on the phone itself, just the phone, then it takes on a different identity so that I see that my mind's inclination toward it can shift. But mostly, I think that we do think of our phones in the same way that we think of our senses. If someone sends us a text, uh, yes, we perceive it with our eyes. We may hear a little ding from our phone if we set that horrible sound notification. But doesn't it, I think it feels internal to us. And soon, of course, they'll be internal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think they really are integrated with our sense of self. And what about this digital self that we've each constructed? Are these more or less real than our biological self or a third type of self beyond the body and mind? Well, it depends who's answering the question, right? Are they more or less real? To whom? To a technologist, they're really real. To a video game fanatic, they may be... All there is to a philosopher, to an environmentalist. It's hard to say which is more real. Now, the Buddhist view would be that they're all like illusion. And it's easier to think of technology as being like an illusion because we know what happens when you lose power. It's just gone. Yeah, I have a hard time saying more is one more real than the other. In addition to the self, you also bring up this great question about time, you know, how our sense of time has changed in the modern world gradually through the introduction of clocks and time zones and train schedules and now the quantum physics-based notions of time. Can you tell us a little bit about the Buddhist view of time and how that relates to our changing notions of modern time? The Buddhist notion of time, as usual, has to do with the Buddhist doctrine of two truths, which says that there's a conventional truth, which is how things appear in the world, as Shantarakshita, the beautiful without examination. In other words, you're just looking around, yeah, it's all here, it's all fine. And time is like that. But the other truth, of course, is the ultimate truth, which is the truth of emptiness, which is things interexist, that nothing exists the way we think it does, like the Heart Sutra says. And so from that point of view, time does not exist at all. The great Japanese Buddhist Dogen, he said, time is a golden Buddha. In other words, there's no separate time. Time is just the things that are happening. Then he added, but you have to get it right in these 24 hours. So he's looking at the ultimate truth where there is no time and the conventional truth where you damn well better get there by 9.30 or you'll be late, and saying both of those are true. Now, science is really interesting on this because there are generally two views. One is space-time, four dimensions, is this big box, if you can imagine, 
a box that has four dimensions. I can't imagine it, but I think there are probably architects out there who can. And the line in which we exist is here so that in a sense, those times, which we call past, they still exist. They're in the box somewhere. Or the other view is relational, which is just basically there is no time. And time just describes the relationship between different things. There's no extra element called time. So this is all very interesting to think about. I know now they're uh, starting to do scientific experiments where they've actually seen time go backwards. Time travel has been a great dream for people. One of the things I like to do in our classes is look at the water that we swim in, which arises from David Foster Wallace's commencement speech at Kenyon, where he talked about the two fish They're swimming along. One fish says the other fish has the water and the other fish says, uh, what water? Mm -hmm. so we're always swimming in water and time is really part of our water. In other words, we think that Time is passing. There is no time. I have no time to do this or that. But we never look at that. And when we look at that, especially for inquiring minds, it gives us a little wiggle room. Maybe we're not so trapped by time. I like Willy Wonka, what he said about time. He said, so much time, so little to do. <laughs> And, and that's a great antidote. And that's part of the Buddhist path and also part of the psychotherapeutic path. In other words, just chill, accept things, accept yourself the way you are, accept the world the way it is. That's the only way to transcend what you're worried about. And so if we take something like time which we take as such a given, and we start looking at that more closely. And we also take into account what the great physicist Rovelli said, that time is just a function of entropy, the tendency of things to dissipate and spread out, and that we happen to be in a part of the multiverse where there is entropy. And were it not for entropy, there would be no time. He also points out that all the physical laws are time invariant, which means they work fine in either direction. And again, you'll have to talk to a real physicist for this. But basically, that's another way of deconstructing time. It's not this universal thing. And we might get a little freedom from that. Thanks for joining us in this conversation with Dr. David Kitte. Our next episode continues this interview with discussions about whether reality is a simulation and whether artificial intelligence might be capable of enlightenment. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to our podcast. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization. All our content is free and ad-free, thanks to our generous donors. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. If you'd like to deepen this conversation, please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, where we can be found under the name Skeptics Path. We'd be grateful if you took a moment right now to review us in your podcast app. 
The reviews help new people discover our podcast. Thanks to Tara Anderson for producing and editing this episode, Christian Parry and Chris Bolton for audio mastering, and Jason Waterman for marketing. We wish you a wonderful day.